0: Total Confidence. That's the um, title of the talk that Mark has uh, given us, me, this morning. So that's what I'm talking on. Let me begin with a quotation from A Grief Observed. It's the book written by that great Christian writer, C.S. Lewis, in the months after his wife's death from cancer. In it he wrote, You never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. It's easy to say you believe a rope to be strong and sound, as long as you're merely using it to cord a box. But suppose you had to hang by that rope over a precipice. Wouldn't you then first discover how much you really trusted it? He was exploring in the midst of his doubts in his anguish in his anger and his fears, how strong his faith really was in that situation. Here's another similar situation. I don't know if any of you have been in this. You have a life-threatening heart condition. You're in hospital waiting for an operation. Without the operation, you will very likely die in the near future. But the operation itself has no guarantee of success. Indeed, there's a risk that the operation itself will kill you and into your hospital room walks a man holding some consent papers for you to sign. He's a surgeon. He sits on your hospital bed. He does a little bit of chit-chat, asking you how you are, and then gets straight down to talk to you through the consent procedure. After a while, he asks you to sign. You're about to sign when you pluck up the courage to ask, how many times have you done this operation? There's a pause. The surgeon tells you, I've never done it. You gulp, and what color you have drains from your face. You ask then, well, how many similar operations have you done? None, he says, I've never done an operation like this before. You feel like reaching for the panic button. You ask him with a shake in your voice, what sort of surgeon he is. Why, he says, I'm a very successful and highly sought-after tree surgeon. And I'm on a career switch. The hospital trust is keen to reduce its waiting times, so it's hired me. On hearing that, you go into cardiac arrest. And when you recover, as thankfully you do, you ask to be referred to a different hospital, a different surgeon. Not surprisingly, you're not willing to trust your life or put your confidence in a tree surgeon. The uh, Christian writer Rick Warren uh, says, amongst many of the things he says, trust requires a track record. Well, you felt that in life. That you trust somebody, you need a bit of a track record from them. Well, back to the hospital. Thank God the situation I've described is almost entirely fictional, at least in this country. We're blessed to have a fantastic health service, especially in times of crisis and emergency And our church has got a number of dedicated health personnel, some who were in operation just a few moments ago. And it's true that most days we're not facing life-threatening, life-changing situations or decisions. Life rolls on, doesn't it, with its routines, its labors, its joys, its frustrations, its irritation, its minutiae. So for the most part, we don't go around sort of, hand on forehead, asking profound questions like, Who am I? Why am I here? Is the material world around me all there is? Is there anything or anyone I can rely on in the perplexing myriad of belief systems? Some would, of course, say nowadays, Well, those are silly questions. Those are meaningless questions. They can't be answered. Or maybe, well, whatever works for you is fine. But in a moment of crisis, in a foxhole, whether you're a Christian or not, very often these are the questions that come to the surface. They're probably there with all of us most of the time, but we keep them under lock and key by the business and ordinariness of life. They're, to use a fancy fancy statement, existential questions. But today in this series of sermons on the culture of hope, and how we can have hope in our world, I want us to look at one of those difficult, challenging questions. I've turned this statement into a question. What can we be totally confident about? Is there anything you're totally confident about? Last night, I nearly ruined a dinner party by asking people that question. And the first answer I got was from someone: I'm totally confident of the love my husband has for me. That's a great answer, isn't it? And then we explored it a bit more. Um, Of course, with the children, I asked them that question. What is there in the world that we can with confidence lean the ladder of our lives on? They've probably answered that question by now and are doing some coloring in. um, But the answer to that question is myriad, isn't it? We might have total confidence in our husband, our wife, our parents, our close friends, certainly our political leaders. Brexit. Capitalism. Socialism. Our feelings. Nationalism. Astrology. Islam. Self-expression. The church. The advances of science. I could go on and on. You could add to them. And yet you know that every one of those is capable of breaking our trust. They're like the ladders here in this picture. And if you, whoever put their trust in those ladders is asking for a fall, aren't they? I wonder what you really, really, really are hanging on to and putting your trust in. In the book of Job, one of the speakers says this of people whose trust is not in God. He says, what they trust is fragile. What they rely on is a spider's web. They lean on the web, but it gives way. They cling to it, but it doesn't hold. Whereas in contrast, Jeremiah, we heard, happy and secure, blessed, is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He's like a tree, rooted, firm, strong. So what is it about this Lord that Jeremiah trusts in that can justify the placing of his trust? And I'm going to get to some points about that. But before I do that, let me say this. And we were exploring this last night. Trust and confidence are not the same things as certainty. Trust and confidence is not the same as certainty. Does anyone commit themselves into the hands of the surgeon and anesthetist with absolute certainty of the outcome? I very much doubt it. There will be plenty, many, most, who've done so with confidence, though, in the skills and the track record and the evidence and the sense of care of the medical team. fact, I would say this, you might not agree, that where there is absolute certainty, there is no need for trust or faith or confidence. Maybe we want to discuss that one over lunch. I'm also aware that some of you might be thinking, well, actually, I'm much more like doubting Thomas than Jeremiah. Right now, I don't have a lot of confidence in myself, in my faith, or in God. There's too much happening. I've got too many questions, too many doubts, too much in front of me. Well, if you are, I get that, and much more importantly, God gets that too. And it is you, be encouraged, because you're in a great big good company. Most Christians, even the strongest of the saints, are not always full of faith and confidence. And if the second part of this talk leaves you feeling, it's not where I am, let me say this. If you cannot this morning be full of faith, you can be faithful. And Jesus says, the one who is faithful, when he does not always have the proof in front of his eyes, is blessed and to be commended. Being faithful when you don't feel full of faith, when the going is hard, is itself a sign of faith. A sign that you are going on putting your trust and confidence in God. And maybe the bits I'm going to say in a minute will ring true on another day. So you can maybe treat the next part as uh, spiritual cognitive behavioral therapy. Did you know the psalmist got to CBT long before we did? The psalmist would say over and over again, declare their faith in God even when they were at their lowest points. So, Let's look at reasons to be confident in God. The first thing we can be confident is the person of God. And when I say the person of God, I really am referring to the character of God, which is probably a better word, but character begins with C, and all my other points begin with P. So it had to be the person of God. And there are four others. See if you can get them before I do. When we speak of God, of course, and his character or his characteristics, we have to recognize that whatever words we use are limited. We're trying to express the inexpressible. But that said, words and language are the rough tools we have. And God has revealed himself in language, in words, through those he has inspired, primarily, of course, in Scripture. So we're not like those Greeks in Athens who worshipped an unknown God. Right back at the beginning of the Bible, the second book, there's a famous incident of the giving of the Ten Commandments when God declares his name. His character, his personhood. Exodus says this, Then the Lord came down and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name. And his name is the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving sin and sinners. We often think of the Old Testament as different from the God in the New Testament. But look, here we have right at almost at the start of scriptures, God saying, in my character, at the heart of my heart, there is compassion, there is grace, there is a slowness to anger, there's an abundance of love, an everlasting faithfulness, a willingness to forgive and restore. And you could add many more. The person and character of God in whom we have committed ourselves, in whom we have confidence, is not an unknown character, not an inconsistent character, not one subject to whims and foibles. We can bet our lives on his character, which we see most clearly of all in the person of Jesus, the Son, who, as Hebrews tells us, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. If you want to find out a little bit more about the character of Jesus is, let me encourage you to look at something which is the back of church. Um, it's a transcript of a six-minute extract from a wonderful and famous sermon preached by an outstanding American pastor and preacher who went by the name of the Reverend Shadrach Meshach Lockeridge. It's called, That's My King. Uh, Do you know him? Do you know him? He repeats time and time again. He, uh, he is the king of kings and the lord of laws. He is the ruler of the universe. He is the highest personality in literature. He is the loftiest ideal in philosophy. Do you know him? And so on. It's good on YouTube. It's better on YouTube than me. Secondly, we can have confidence in the promises of God. As you know, Scripture is full of promises from cover to cover, well, I was with some friends and university friends a couple of weeks ago, and we were laughing because in those days, in the sad days of the 70s, if you went in feeling a bit dejected, somebody would open a box and say, "Would you like to take a promise?" Anybody remember promise? Some of the old ones remember promise. But Judith, you've got a promise box still, haven't you? Yes, and you would take this promise out and read it. But it is the Scriptures full of promises. I could have rattle off just a few. "Don't fear, for I am with you." Don't be dismayed, for I am your God. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They'll soar with wings on eagles. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they'll not sweep over you. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. If the sun sets you free, then you'll be free indeed. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust him. So I say to you, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. And so on, as you can see up there, St. Paul says wonderfully in Corinthians, Jesus Christ, the Son of God we've preached to you, is no doubtful quantity. He is the divine yes. Every promise of God finds its yes in him. Thirdly, we can have confidence in the power of God. And we see that power in our sense of time and history, in two events. One is the creation of the world. Without him was not made anything that was made. And secondly, we see it in the other climactic event in history which demonstrates the power of God, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Time and time again, uh, you see in the New Testament the phrase, raised from the dead, raised to life, Raised from the dead. By the power of God, he was raised from the dead. And the power of God appears 130 times or more in the New Testament. Speaking of God's action in Christ through the Holy Spirit and and us. And wonderfully, St. Paul says, you know what? The same power that raised our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead is at work in us. That's extraordinary, isn't it? God's transforming power is at work in us. And he goes on to pray that we may know more of that incomparably great power, that power which is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand. We can have confidence in the power of God. And fourthly, and it gets shorter, we can have confidence In the presence of God. In effect. God says to us all the time. What Ruth said to Naomi. Where you go. Says God. I'll go. I'll be there. I'll go with you. The promise that Moses gave. To Joshua. Still holds good for us. The Lord himself goes before you. And will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Don't be afraid and don't be discouraged. Now we know that there are many days when we are not conscious of the presence of God. We're too busy or perhaps too overcome with whatever trial or difficulty we're facing. It's a feeling experienced by all Christians. But it's a feeling. It's not a truth The presence of God in those situations has no more left us and vanished than the sun has gone away today. The sun is still there. We're not seeing it, but it's still there. The presence of God is as present as the life-giving oxygen which you're all absorbing now, but you don't see it. The presence of God is with us. We can have confidence in that enduring, constant, faithful presence. And finally, we can have confidence in the good purposes of God for his creation, which will one day be restored and renewed for all mankind, who will one day recognize that Jesus is Lord. And his good purposes for us. And you all know that verse from Jeremiah. I know the purposes and plans I have for you. Plans for good. God's good purposes are at work in us. We can trust them. We can hold on to them. I began with a sort of medical story. Here's another one. The family were gathered around the bed of an old lady who was in the last days of her life. As they sat in silence or whispered to one another, someone said rather morbidly, she's sinking fast. At which the old lady opened one eye and said, oh no, I'm not sinking. You can't sink through rock. Because her faith was on the rock, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. She ain't going to sink through that. She had a solid confidence. This morning, wherever we are in feelings, whatever, we can look to a God whose person, whose promises, whose power, whose presence, and whose purposes are reliable. He's a God of everlasting love who cannot fail or be unfaithful. And that's why we can have confidence. And if it's not 100% or total confidence, we can still be confident and pray that day by day, God will lead us to greater and greater trust and greater and greater confidence in him. Let's just be quiet and let's just pray. Lord, we trust you and yet we need to trust you more. Lord, our confidence is in you and we want our confidence to grow. Our faith is in you and we want you to increase our faith. Lord, we pray now for those who are in difficult places, those wrestling with hard questions, those not sensing your presence, those doubting themselves in you. And we pray that by your power, fulfilling your promises, you will act in their lives now so that they may draw fully on all the resources that you have and grow in confidence. And all God's people said, Amen.